0: With me today to discuss skilled nursing facility policy reform proposals is Cheryl Mason, principal with Mason Advisors. Cheryl, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's good to be back. Uh, Ms. Mason's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, the U.S. spends far more than other rich countries on health care, yet still delivers comparatively poor quality and worse health outcomes. Among other notable examples is care provided by post-acute skilled nursing facilities or again SNFs. Per MedPAC under Medicare, there are approximately 15,500 Medicare and Medicaid certified SNFs, with SNF spending expected to grow from 166 billion or total SNF spending, roughly half of which is a taxpayer dollars to 240 billion by 2025. SNFs on balance have enjoyed double-digit profit margins since at least 2000. In 20 for-profit sniffs per pack, margins were uh, averaging 20%. Though SNF patients' health is obviously compromised, nevertheless the pandemic's effect on these patients has been, as uh, the MedPak March report termed, devastating. SNF care quality problems have been known and documented by the GAO, amongst others, for several decades. Dedicated podcast listeners may recall I discussed, for example, the misuse or abusive use of antipsychotics as chemical restraints by SNFs. I argue they're likely SNFs' most egregious failure in 2012. I discussed this issue again in February 2018 when I noted in testimony before the Congress in 2007, the FDA's David Graham stated, quote-unquote, 15,000 elderly people in nursing homes are dying each year from the off-label use of antipsychotics. For an indication that the FDA knows does not work, close quote, and I discussed this issue again with Ways and Means Committee staff in August of twenty. On note, last September, the New York Times published a lengthy investigative report regarding uh, antipsychotic use in Sniffs and found that in gaming the misuse of psychotic they gained the misuse of psychotics rather by fraudulently diagnosing their elderly patients as schizophrenic, a condition that is almost always diagnosed before the age of forty. Concerning recently, uh, recent policy reforms, they are numerous, uh, and they've been proposed of late. In February, uh, this past uh, February, rather, the White House issued a fact sheet that identified several reforms. In early April, the National Academy of Medicine issued a report titled the National Imperative to Improve Nursing Home Quality. And uh, a week later, or in mid-April, uh, CMS published its proposed 2023 SNF rule. Listeners will recall I interviewed Cheryl in August of 14 regarding post-acute Medicare fraud and a year later, September 15, regarding a value-based home health care demo. She is here again to discuss SNF policy reforms and their chances for success. So with that, is uh, too long of an opening or background. Let's get right to this, uh, Cheryl. So let's start with, and this was prominently noted in the uh, White House fact sheet. This was dated again February 28th. Uh, the fact sheet discussed uh, private equity ownership uh, in the fact sheet, and I'll note listeners know that uh, a couple of weeks ago, I discussed PE in uh, the healthcare space with uh, Laura Katz-Olson, the Lehigh professor, in regarding her book, Ethically Challenged. So uh, let's start with the fact sheet. Uh, what did it find, and what does related research say about uh, show a PE ownership in the SNF space?
1: certainly. So thank you, David. As being a typical Washingtonian, I'm going to start by not directly answering your question, <laughs> but I will get to it, I promise. Um, but but I wanted to start. I have been in the very fortunate position of working with direct care workers in nursing homes for many years, uh, thousands of them. And I want to make sure that listeners understand when we talk about problems with this sector, we are not talking about problems with the direct care workers. They Um, They, even prior to this uh, pandemic and the tragedy that it has been for this sector, um, they have been operating under the most extremely difficult circumstances imaginable. Their work is hard. It is dirty. They are not well compensated. And it is one of the most, being a direct caregiver in a nursing home is one of the most dangerous positions in the United States, according to um, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So, These people deserve all the credit in the world for continuing to function through this horrible pandemic, for having the courage to go to work every day, putting their lives on the line to care for their elderly residents, Uh, everybody from the administrator to the people who keep the facilities clean, operational and direct care workers. I, I can't say enough wonderful things about them. So let's let's start from there. Uh, however, recognizing that there are systemic issues, as you point out, um, I remember going to a Senate Finance Committee hearing on nursing home quality of care back in November of 2019, just about uh, just before the world was about to come crashing down around us. Um, that was when uh, Senator Grassley was the chair, and the, it was a very, very difficult hearing to sit through because the witnesses were children of, of parents who had been had come to terrible ends in nursing homes uh, because of poor quality of care. Uh, and then the experts that they had all really pretty soundly agreed that the problem is staffing, and staffing costs money. And while, you know, we know that the margins for Medicare are relatively rich, Medicare only accounts for 17% yeah. of revenue for nursing homes. The lion's share, almost 60%, comes from Medicaid, and in many states, it is not enough money to cover the cost of providing care. So, thus, it cuts to staffing, thus, you know, nibbling around the edges of quality programs, things like that. So, that's something that needs to be, um, needs to be addressed. And in the in the president's announcement, you know, basically what he did was he took a lot of um, work steps that were included in the Build Back Better legislation, you know, including uh, mandated staffing levels to be created by CMS. In Build Back Better, there is actually funding to offset the cost of that. Of course, that takes an act of Congress, but um, but that's basically the source of the um, of the uh, the direction that this this document takes. He does indicate that. Um, looking into private equity ownership in nursing homes is absolutely a priority. Um, In the press release, he noted he actually cited a uh, a National Bureau of Economic Research paper that was published in February of 21 that indicated that private equity-owned nursing homes have excess mortality or deaths of residents of 10%. Um, So in other words, they have 10% higher excess death rates than other nursing homes, uh, increased government spending by 11% uh, per resident, increased the use of psychotropic drugs to tranquilize residents by 50%, mm-hmm. uh, and also a study that he cited a study that showed private equity-backed SNFs had COVID-19 infection and death rates 30 and 40% higher, respectively, than the state average. Um, and and the the announcement noted that overall 23% of COVID-related deaths. Were nursing home residents and, and nursing home employees. So, and that's if you look at what a proportion they are of the overall population, it's less than 1%. So, um, they also discussed the increasing influence of private equity in the sector with noting that investments grew from $5 billion in 2000 to $100 billion in 2018. And they indicate that today private equity sponsors own about 5% of nursing homes in the United States. And the concern here is that the transactions have become so complicated and so opaque that it's very difficult for both the government and the consumer to really understand who owns the nursing homes and who is ultimately responsible. Uh, for what's going on, so they're and they use um, in this uh, report from the National uh, Bureau of Economic Research, they actually cite an example, and I'd, I'd like to go through this with you because to me it clarifies all the different factors that come into private equity uh, influence in this space and uh, how some things could possibly be good, but how some things they give an example of one situation that where it really didn't go very well. So what the report says is, on the one hand, with private equity investors, that the providers may have more access to capital, right? And if you have more access to capital, you may be able to do more improvements to your building. You may be able to spend some of that money on better quality of care. They may bring in a more experienced management team or or have management resources that um, could help to enhance the, the function of the, of the building um and so so there are things that private equity bring to the bring to the table that could be good on the other hand um this situation is that that oftentimes there are cost cutting measures put in uh we know that that uh the report indicates that nurse staffing declines by 3% after acquisition by a private equity uh, firm and uh, i think overall staffing goes down by 1.5% So um, the other thing that happens is that the nursing home that gets acquired incurs a large debt obligation, usually as part of the buyout, and the resulting interest payments can reduce the cash available for care. In addition to that, private equity owners often sell the real estate assets shortly after the buyout, which generates cash that can be returned to investors, but then that further causes indebtedness of the actual provider because now they have to pay rent for their buildings. So they used um, an example of one of the biggest private equity deals, um, and it was when Carlisle Group bought HCR ManorCare for about $6.3 billion in 2007, about a quarter of which was equity and three quarters was debt. That debt went onto the balance sheet of HCR ManorCare. Four years later, Carlisle sold the real estate assets for $6.1 billion, uh, which gave investors a sub- obviously a substantial return on equity and then ManorCare, HCR ManorCare rented its facilities. Um, And there was a Washington Post investigation into that particular situation that the report cites that found the quality of care deteriorated following the real estate sale. And then the other thing that they talk about is the relatively short term uh, uh, horizon of private equity investments. Mm -hmm. You know that their interest window is about three to five years They worry about management making decisions that could have a negative impact on the long-term success and performance of the entity to maximize short-term profits. And they note in the report, in the case of ManorCare, the nursing home chain was ultimately unable to make its interest in lease payments and entered bankruptcy proceedings in 2018, and Carlisle sold its stake in the company to the landlord. So that's the kind of thing, it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around all of that, um, going on and and being funded by primarily by government resources so so the what the White House is talking about doing is doing a study of the role of private equity, real estate investment trusts, other investment ownership, and try to make that transparency to transparent to consumers and also to track the history of the investors as far as quality of care is concerned and make that information public so that when you know, if I'm thinking about placing my mom somewhere, I'll be able to go on Nursing Home Care Compare and see what private equity sponsor owns it and what their history has been as far as quality is concerned and staffing. So so that's the reason behind that particular focus. There are other things that they're talking about doing. I want to say the one that has the attention of The industry probably to the greatest extent is, um, and they announced in the proposed rule, CMS is conducting a study on how to go about establishing minimum staffing levels uh, that'll ensure uh, quality of care and safety for the residents. And the uh, White House announcements indicated that a proposed rule outlining that program will be issued within one year of the February 28th release of the announcement. Uh, They're also going to enhance and expand the special focus facility program, and that is for that is a club that no nursing home ever wants to belong to. So, it's a national program, and uh, and so every state has at least five nursing homes that is in that group, and they may have up to thirty, there's maximum, and then they usually have several. Uh, that are slotted like in waiting slots for when people graduate from the program they can slide another one right in. Uh, And basically what they do, this is a program for nursing homes that have compared to their peers much more serious uh, safety and health deficiencies, usually a long-standing pattern of these deficiencies, and a greater number of them than when they're compared to their peers. So there's a, 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 you know, a scoring system. They assign points based on the number and the nature of deficiencies in the health inspections. And then if you get put into this program, you can count on being inspected at least once every six months. Probably more than that. Be under a plan of correction. Be, you know, the, the feet get held to the fire to make sure that they're getting the train back on the tracks. From a quality perspective, and then hopefully you graduate over a period of time. However, if the improvements are not made, um, CMS has full authority to, to pull your Medicare and Medicaid provider numbers. So, um, so this is a program that the that CMS is planning to expand uh, and enhance uh, as well. And they also talked about potentially providing incentives to eliminate three and four bedded rooms. Uh, this would help obviously, with um, infection control issues. The White House has asked Congress to increase the nursing home inspection budget by 25% to um, $500 million, and they also have asked um, Congress to increase civil monetary penalties from $21,000 per instance to a $1 million and give CMS the authority to be able to ban owners with a history of poor-performing facilities. So I'm going to stop there and take a breath and see if you have any questions specifically that you'd like me to answer.
0: Yes, absolutely. So thank you for that. So relative to the paper you referenced at the White House sites, I'll just name it. And this was, you noted, uh, uh, this past February. Uh, Does private equity investment in healthcare benefit patients? Evidence from nursing homes, I thought, quite excellent. Amongst other things, it found was that PE ownership leads to a 3% decline in hours per patient day supplied by frontline nursing assistants. So this gets at the staffing issue. And then there's other problems, just to beat this further, relative to PE ownership. And that has to do with preventable emergency department visits, preventable hospitalizations, and, of course, infection rates. All are um, uh, higher. I will say, since I mentioned National Academy of Medicine uh, report and named it. Uh, the president thereof, Dr. Zhao, uh, his comment, per your explanation, not surprisingly, quote unquote, persistent inequities, inadequacies in American nursing home care clearly illustrates this system is broken. Uh, so pretty straightforward, direct conclusion there. So relative to your, uh, your comments, yes, let's follow. You used the word opaque so thank you for that yeah. because my follow-up question was for the first time, and this is my PECOS question, for the first time CMS in mid-April 20th released data regarding changes in hospital and SNF ownership, for example, uh, mergers and acquisitions and consolidations between 16 and 22 for those enrolled in Medicare. So this is all by way of you know transparency, trying to make uh, ownership less opaque. What's what's your expectation of how uh, much utility this should prove by making this data available? Or the other way to ask the question is, how might academics attack this uh, data and try to um, uh, help, per your point, family members identify better uh, SNF providers?
1: Sure. So I think that, um, you know, they, they have the tool in place that will be the basis of the reporting system, which is Nursing Home Care Compare which is, of course, not a perfect system, but they, they've they been working on improving that over the last, I want to say, four years um, to make it easier to follow, easier to find information. And, and they have made some progress um, in, in doing that. And that is where they will house this information where um, ultimately, and I don't see why they can't do this because, you know, when you have a change of ownership, you have to fill out this monstrous form called an 855A and You know, it it, um, you have to list the ownership interests and all kinds of personal information about them and that sort of thing. Once you get into though the selling of real estate and things like that, it becomes that's where the opacity comes in, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think that this is something that that is achievable. It sounds to me now. This obviously was just announced a couple months ago. The fact that they immediately followed up in the proposed rule with discussing the the staffing uh, minimum staffing ratios I think this is something that the President is committed to um and to hear a President of the United States mention nursing homes in the state of the union i've I've been doing this a long time. I have never heard that happen before so um so I think it's something they're committed to simply because it's such a long standing problem, and there has been such a tragic outcome with the pandemic and widely recognized that the system needs fixing. It was recognized before. Now we've had, you know, what is it, 25% of the deaths in the United States Mm -hmm. or 23% happened in that population. This is when the role of government is to protect its citizenry and keep us safe, especially those of us who are most vulnerable. And elderly and children, here we go, and people who are sick. So... Um, so I think that they're committed to it. I think they'll stick with it. I think the things that require funding are a stretch because I think the mood of Congress right now is not to hand out more money for anything. Um, so, uh, and of course we've got midterms coming up. So, but but there's a lot in this that can be done through rulemaking and um, and and through the administration. So I, I do think that we will see these things coming into being, and uh, some of them at least.
0: So thank you again. No, I don't
1: know. Did you? Yeah. So do you want me to talk at all about the underlying reasons for the staffing shortage?
0: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you specifically about staffing, but I do just to follow up on your answer. You know, I I agree relative to the, the, to the president's credit making note during the State of the Union, per my uh, mention of the MedPack report. They used the word devastating in in my view, and I think you'd agree, Cheryl, that if 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 this administration. Did not go right at uh, sniff care considering what happened during the pandemic. I mean, the phrase I saw repeatedly were that long term care facilities were quote unquote killing fields. And let's, pre your opening comment, including the mortality rate of frontline staff, let's, let's uh, include that, that if they didn't, this would be, in my view, completely unconscionable. Um, so let's go to staffing. Um, there, there was some sort of, eye rolling when um CMS did not spell out or propose staffing ratios explicitly in the rule, but that they would per your comment, that they would they would make these in, in a certain period of time. Um, mm-hmm. So let's get into this. What does staffing reform look like? Um, uh, and let's introduce and we before we started this, Shell, you and I talked about what states are doing. And a few states actually have gone down this Staffing ratio, uh, road. So, can you spell this out a bit more specifically?
1: Sure. What staffing? The thing that's interesting to know is that nursing homes are required to report on direct care staffing hours through what's called a payroll-based journal system, or P- PB and J, peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> and they've been doing this for a couple of years. It's it's on nursing home care. Compare what their staffing is like, particularly on weekends. That's a relatively new development. And so, um, what they look at is the hours per resident per day, and, and a uniform definition of who exactly qualifies to be counted as a direct care worker, right? And and so, at the state level, these things are being done. Um, you know, things get defined slightly differently when you have states doing things at different levels. At the federal level, I would expect there at least to be a minimum number of hours per resident per day for registered nurses, for licensed practical nurses, and for certified nursing assistants. The federal government has always hesitated to do that before, not wanting to be too prescriptive, but we know if you just increase registered nurse staffing by twenty minutes a day, there's something like a twenty percent drop in the in the rate of of covid nineteen infection. so so it's we've had all kinds of studies recently that show the direct correlation between quality and staffing and the other thing that would help with this as well is if you have more staff, the staff is not going to be as exhausted. you're going to have less turnover, you're going to have fewer worker related injuries, you know um so it's, it's a good idea all around what the industry is concerned about, and rightfully so, is people cost money. And so, uh, again, in Build Back Better, there were funds to offset that cost. Now, for example, in New Jersey, uh, they recently passed a law that requires that increased Medicaid rates by 10% and require... They basically established what's known as a medical loss ratio uh, so that 90% of all revenue for nursing homes in New Jersey has to go toward direct care workers, uh, direct care costs. So 90%, and then they're a little more aggressive. California actually has introduced a bill that would would require 85% to be spent on direct care, Uh, and California actually does have a minimum uh, staff, uh, hours per resident per day that they're, I, I think they're looking at increasing it at this point. Um, but so things are happening at the state level that I think are kind of interesting. Illinois, uh, passed a uh, legislation granting $700 billion increase in nursing home funding. Half of that is to be allocated to staffing costs, 70 million to quality initiatives, um, $83 million to CNA compensation and education. So some of the states are waking up and doing something about it because it's, things are, are relatively stuck um, in D.C. But CMS has the authority. Uh, the fact that they didn't lurch out of the starting gate and just come out with a plan without doing a study, right. to me, I don't see why there would be eye rolls. To me, that makes sense. You know, they want to gather information from providers. They don't want to do this in a vacuum. They want to make sure they get it right the first time. So that does not surprise me. And that was the wording that was in Build Back Better, is that they would do a study within a year. The, the proposed rule would be released and then, you know, it would follow the normal 60-day comment period followed by analysis of the comments and then implementation finalization. So. Um, so that's the situation with staffing. Now the other situation with staffing is: can you find staff?
0: Right, that's the and flip side question about uh, education and training, right?
1: Exactly. So about uh, nursing homes have lost about fourteen point four percent of their workforce during the, the during the pandemic. Uh, their occupancy has dropped off as well, from about eighty five percent down to the mid seventies. But it is excruciating for any healthcare provider, much less a nursing home, to find. Uh, and recruit registered nurses, licensed practical nurses, or nursing assistants. It's just extremely difficult. And there are a couple of factors that are feeding into this. Number one, immigration, which is where we've you know we've had a shortage of nurses going on and off for the last, ever since I've been a nurse, which is a lifetime. Um, and when things, when the economy gets tighter, the nursing shortage sometimes almost goes away because people go back to work. They don't retire early. They increase the hours that they work. When the economy is good, the nursing shortage gets worse. So it was interesting in um, but immigration has has changed significantly. Obviously, we had four years of relatively restricted immigration policies. And then right on top of that, the doors for legal immigration pretty much slammed shut because of all the travel restrictions related mm-hmm. to the pandemic. so but the tendency to not be able to recruit as many foreign trained nurses, had started before that. In, for example, in 2007, 24,000 registered nurses um, came to the United States, foreign-trained nurses, to practice. In 2015, that number had dropped to 6,500. So that's you know, so that's that's a serious um, situation. You've got the demographics where 50% of registered nurses are over the age of 50, and in nursing homes, more than half of the RNs are over the age of 50. So we're anticipating. Wave of retirements uh, and continued increase in in the need for additional staffing. So, and and none of the and then of course we've had the deaths and illness related to related to the pandemic. And then finally, there's a bottleneck at the educational level where I want to say back in the nineteen early nineteen eighties, late seventies, there was a big push by uh, nursing. It, it, professional leadership to make the bachelor's degree the entry level for education to become a registered nurse. And for 150 years before that, most people became RNs through hospital-based schools of nursing, and we didn't have a shortage. Now, I'm not directly tying the two, but the fact of the matter is now the majority of new nurses are graduates of four-year programs. For four-year colleges and universities, You have to have people with doctorate degrees to be the educators, and we have a terrible shortage of um, nurses with PhDs, and the average age of a nurse with a PhD now is 63. So in 2019, I want to say more than 80,000 fully qualified applicants were turned away from four-year schools of nursing because we don't have enough teachers. So there's a bottleneck right there, and... It's not that people don't want to become nurses even after this pandemic. It's we don't have enough of the teachers. And the I think we're down to about 80 hospital-based schools of nursing in the whole country at this point. And then there are still some uh, community colleges that offer two-year um, degrees as well for nurses. So it's, it's an educational, educational situation, an immigration situation, and an aging population situation all colliding at the same time. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. no easy answers on that.
0: Okay, thank you again. I do want to ask about uh, programmatic, sniff value based purchasing. Uh, Of course, that could be an entire conversation, and of course, the quality measure aspect. But since I mentioned in my intro the use, uh, misuse, uh, abuse of antipsychotics as chemical restraints, this issue has been going on. And I cited intentionally the testimony by David Graham, which is now 15 years in running. Um, I noted the New York Times last September study, uh, there was a Ways and Means study, there was still earlier uh, a Human Rights Watch study um, yeah. on this issue. This issue has been going on for many, many decades, and I was, let's just say, not uh, impressed when, in reading the White House document, uh, the White House stated, CMS will launch a new effort to identify problematic diagnoses, read... Or schizophrenia, to bring down antipsychotic medical use. Um, so that was about as vague as you can um, state. CMS, of course, did eight odd, nine years ago, launch a voluntary program. It looked like it was successful until GAO audited and found that uh, they were able to um, maintain uh, excessive misuse because all of a sudden... Uh, beneficiaries had a uh, an appropriate diagnosis to medicate them, which of course was was fraudulent. So where where are we? Are we ever going to get anywhere on this uh, antipsychotic mid use, or how are you optimistic?
1: Oh, it's that has just been such a long, ongoing struggle. I, I think part of the I think in the short term, none of these problems are things that we can just flip a switch and it'll right. be all better. Uh, unfortunately. But I think that if the industry, you know, and and one thing that was pointed out in the uh, recent article that I read about the quality problems in the the sector, that the quality of care being provided in some of these smaller buildings that are clustered together, it's called the greenhouse model, um, with universal workers, you know, because you have so much of a smaller patient population to take care of, you don't wind up with 50 people restrained in a wheelchair, chemically and physically, sitting around the circle around the nurse's station. You just don't have that. So my, my hope and, um, is that as that model becomes more popular and as states get more creative in working with providers who want to implement that model by paying them enhanced uh, FMAP, in fact, Arkansas is, is using monies collected through civil monetary penalties to provide extra money to nursing homes that want to build or reconstruct these small uh, greenhouse buildings. Hopefully, things like that address the issue indirectly. Um, but I do expect that, you know, as, as we talked about, um, the, the value based purchasing program for skilled nursing facilities is widely viewed as being worse than having nothing. Um, that was a, a direct quote from a MedPAC commissioner um, fairly recently because it only measures one. Um, quality indicator legislation was passed uh, since that comment was made that allows CMS to add more quality indicators. And in the president's announcement, they did talk about enhancing the value-based purchasing program. And at some point, we're going to wind up with a unified post-acute prospective payment system, hopefully with a more robust value-based purchasing um, a program. But that's, that's, again, a topic for another day. And I know you wanted me to go through the proposed rule. Do you still want me to do that?
0: Well, we, and, and we, we somewhat did indirectly. Um, you're right. I, I, I think we'd agree, and I think you're stating that the value-based purchasing SNF program needs to certainly evolve or, let's say, uh, beef up. Related, of course, are quality measures, and we need to move uh, off from pay for reporting to actually pay for performance. As we to the quality measures, the issue I do want, and you did mention this, and that is uh, there's been a change uh, relative to enforcement and fines from the Trump administration. So if you could give the listener an overview of, of what the Trump administration did relative to penalties for – these were, of course, termed one-time fine. That was the change. So it looks like we're reverting back. So where are we on enforcement and penalties?
1: So what we're doing, what this administration is doing is historically when a nursing home fell out of compliance with quality guidelines and had, I mean, to get a civil monetary penalty, you have to have done something pretty uh, problematic. Um, And usually what they would do is they would uh, say that they had to put in place a plan of correction and for every day that they remained out of compliance with whatever regulation it was, they could fine them X number of dollars a day. What the Trump administration did was they said, "Nah, you know what, we're going to revert to just a one-time penalty of, I think it was, what, $21,000, period, Mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, And so um, going back to the per diem, means that there's going to be the continued oversight that that they there is a, a strong financial uh, uh motivation to correct whatever the problem has been and so that is something that they you know they've they've um they are have done is is going back to using that as you know it or having all the tools in the toolkit not just saying we're just going to do this and um so at the other thing that that uh is likely to happen, too, as part of this initiative by the administration, is to, uh, under the Obama administration, they had created a a, a much more robust infection control set of regulations for the sector, and very sadly, from a timing perspective, just ahead of the pandemic, the Trump administration really, um, this is not a political statement, they just gutted those regulations, and they were basically... Health and safety uh, regulations, and so, uh, and particularly with emphasis on infection control. And we know we have data showing that I want to say it was eighty two percent of nursing homes within a particular period of time had some sort of deficiencies right. related to infection control. So again, it's part of the plan to um, to enhance those requirements again, making it you know an infection monitoring person a full-time position rather than just not. Uh, and and then increased emphasis on it in the in the in safety and inspection and educational
0: process. All right. So thank you again. So my last question would be, and let's just sort of pull back with this, and I'll ask you, you're expert uh, in this field, relative to uh, uh, regulations in the space. What would you say are the top, say three policy reforms that the skilled nursing facility industry really? And I'm gonna I'm gonna believe that you're going to say sort of staffing ratios is up there, but what other are sort of top of mind do you think most okay. important?
1: So the most important thing, the thing that is top of mind among providers, number one is the proposed rule for Medicare and that uh, CMS proposed basically a net update of negative 0.9%. Right. Uh, that includes a parity adjustment of negative 4.6%. They had their payment mechanism put into place back in 2020. CMS contends that it led to an increase in Medicare spending, which they don't have the authority to authorize that, and they have to bring it back to budget neutrality. Right.
0: Clawback, the right.
1: Yeah. Well, it's not it's not a clawback. It is like, a reduction right. yes, in yes. going forward. So right. They could have done a recoupment, and they did not. Now, I want to just take a second, because there's something that I found so disturbing. I've been listening to other analysts, Some industry lobbyists use very, very inflammatory language when describing the proposed rule. And for the first time ever, in all the years I've been doing this, on page three of the proposed rule, CMS felt as if they had to write the following. Quote, CMS will not post on regulations.gov public comments that make threats to individuals or institutions or suggest that the individual will take actions to harm another individual. Can you imagine? And, and my point in, in reading that is I was horrified
0: mm-hmm. that
1: someone, obviously there's got to be a reason for them to put that in. And so using this inflammatory language and comparing a negative 0.9% cut or update to what happened in 2012 when it was negative 11.3%, it these two things are not the same thing right? Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. CMS. They are doing their job. I, you can disagree with it. You can disagree with the way they calculate it. But but using this inflammatory, words, words count. And I'm really saddened by what I've been hearing from some. It's, you know, obviously nobody ever wants a negative update. And this sector has been through a terrible time and is facing a lot of, of change and some difficulties. And I can understand why they're concerned about it. But CMS has its fiduciary responsibility to keep a change budget neutral. What they didn't do was they didn't propose a clawback. They didn't propose a multiple year. For every year you've been overpaid 5%. We're going to cut you the 5%. -hmm. So it, it could, and I'm an unusual analyst in that I was not surprised by this, and I think other people were, and I don't know why they would have been if they hadn't. I mean, they clearly stated it in last year's final rule. We're not doing it this year, but we intend to propose a parity adjustment in the fiscal year 2023 rule, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they did. Mm-hmm. So, but other that so that is number one. I think is they're really concerned about that. Number two, I think is about the um, the staffing requirement, and I think that some that have been um, you know depending for revenue um, on therapy services, you know the the therapy. Ah uh, Part B services have have uh, really had some substantive changes made to the way the reimbursement works. And I think there's some concern about that. I don't there's there's nothing in the proposed rule about that, but just something to be aware of that things have changed in that uh, that arena as well, and it's it's deeply concerning to them.
0: Okay, thank you. I'll just uh, cite the National Academy report again, and I, I think we would both certainly agree with this. Uh, and they conclude by saying, aging should not be something to be dreaded, but something to be revered. And as such, nursing homes should provide the highest quality and compassionate care to enhance the lives of those in their care. So uh, let's hope we get there with these policy reforms sooner than later. So with that, show, genuinely appreciate covering so much uh, uh, so quickly. And let's hope for the best in the final rule.
1: Absolutely. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, David.
0: Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and
1: please listen again soon.